or put the Buddha's teaching in the context of how we can practice it in our day-to-day lives. And to begin with, I'll uh, read a verse from the Dhammapada. To avoid all evil, to cultivate good, to purify one's mind, this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. We can summarize the teaching of the Buddha with this verse from the Dhammapada. In essence, the Buddha's teaching aims at the purification of our heart and mind in order to have a deep understanding of reality free from our opinions, ideas or prejudices. Meditation is a journey into the depths of our heart and mind. And this is not an easy undertaking. On the contrary, it's one of the most challenging adventures in our life. <coughs> to penetrate into the deepest jungle of the Amazonas or to climb the highest mountain on this earth seems to be a piece of cake. Nowhere are we so much confronted with our own limits as on this journey into the faraway corners of our mind. And to do that, we need a big portion of courage and (coughs) perseverance to not give up. And so... To face this challenge well prepared, the Buddha told us time and again how important it is to have a pure moral conduct, which means to have faultless bodily and verbal actions. (coughs) And this is expressed with the first two lines of this verse from the Dhammapada, namely, to avoid all evil and to cultivate good. So with that, the question arises, what is good? Or what is considered to be wholesome? What is beneficial? Or which kind of actions lead to wholesome, beneficial, and good results? And on the other side, what is bad, what is evil, what is unwholesome, what is not beneficial, or which kinds of actions do lead to bad, evil, unwholesome uh, results. So today we'll have a look at these questions and see how we can live our life in order to make the best out of it. 
So how can we make use of our life and uh, of the things that we use in our life to bring out the greatest benefit possible? Or what is the essence of our life? Some of you may have never thought about the fact that it is not to be taken for granted that we are born as a human being. In the Buddha's teaching, we have six different realms into which beings can be reborn. Two of these six realms are visible for us. That's the human realm and the animal realm. Besides these two realms, there are the realms of the Asuras, kind of demonic titans, then the realm of the Petas, the hungry ghosts, then the realm of hell beings. And so these three realms, together with the animal realm, these are the so-called four lower realms, or uh, unhappy planes of existence. Then we have the human realm, and we have also the so-called heavenly realms, which are the Deva realms and the Brahma realms. And so the human realm lies between the lower realms and the heavenly realms. And with the help of the following simile, the Buddha showed us how difficult it is to get a human rebirth, or how small the chances are to be reborn as a human being. So, for the simile, a needle is put uh, into the earth so that it points, so that the pointed part uh, points upwards towards the sky. And then another needle is dropped from high above in the sky, it says from the Brahma realm. And so the chances that the needle drops from high above uh, hits the point of the needle stuck in the earth is still greater than the chance to be reborn as a human being. And so a human being what does that mean? Or how does a human being differ from other living beings? As a human being, we have the ability to think. We can look at the situation with a <coughs> rational mind. And with this ability to think and to differentiate we can recognize the good from the bad. We can differentiate between what brings beneficial results and what brings not beneficial results. And with this ability to think, to analyze, to discriminate, we also can see which kind of actions only have a short-term benefit and which actions have long-term benefits. A human being, or to be born as a human being, also means that we are living beings consisting of two different phenomena, namely mental phenomena and physical phenomena. So the combination and the working together of these mental and physical phenomena is what we call a human being. And for a new life, for a new existence to arise, there need to be certain conditions. And for 
of these most uh, important necessary conditions are avicca, which is ignorance, not knowing. Then the second is tanha, craving. The third one is upadana, which is clinging, holding on. And the fourth one is kamma, intentional actions. And so avicca, the first of these causes, is the basic ignorance of not seeing things as they truly are. It's a distorted or perverted uh, view of reality, of ourselves and the world around us. And so based on this ignorance or not knowing, living beings are not able to see the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, asuba and asara which are the correct characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, non-self, non-beauty, and asara means without substance, without a core. And so each form of existence each form of uh, living being, is uh, subject to these characteristics, be it as a human being, an animal, a deva, or even a brahma. Then the second cause for a new existence to arise is tanha, which is uh, craving, wanting. The literal translation is thirst. Living beings always thirst for uh, sense inputs and uh, if possible pleasurable uh, sense inputs. So this thirst for uh, the desire of the senses is without end. It's endless. It goes on and on and on and on. Then the third cause is upadana, which is clinging, and this is a stronger form of craving, stronger form of tanha. Tanha can be compared to the hand reaching out, stretching out the hand. And upadana Clinging is like the hand having got hold of something, clinging on to something, holding on to, not letting go anymore. And then the fourth cause is karma. As we have seen, these are intentional actions of body, speech and mind. And so, based on this law of cause and effect, which karma is also part of, karma and the effects of karma. So basically wholesome, beneficial and good actions will result in wholesome, beneficial and good uh, effects or results. And unwholesome, harmful, bad actions result in harmful, unwholesome or bad effects. And it's also said that wholesome karma leads to a rebirth in either the human realm or the heavenly realms. Whereas unwholesome karma, that will will lead to a rebirth in the four lower realms. So if we look for an essence in this life, we also should first of all be clear about what we mean with essence. So what we take as an essence should be something that cannot be destroyed, 
something that is long-lasting and gives beneficial results, something that is also conducive to our well-being, <coughs> happiness and contentment. And as a real essence, it should also be helpful to attain our ultimate goal of liberation or Nibbana. So just as a piece of hardwood cannot be destroyed by termites or by rain or by other bugs or by environmental influences, so it should not be possible for this essence to be destroyed by anything whatsoever. As I said before, our life consists of mental and physical phenomena, or differently expressed, we consist of a body and a mind. And in addition to this, there is something else that plays an important role in our lives, and these are our material possessions, the things that we have, that we make use of. And so we have uh, three things which play an important role in our life. That's our material possessions, our body, and our mind. So when we look for an essence, what can we find in this three parts. What kind of essence can we extract from our material possessions, from our body and from our mind? First of all, let's have a look at our material possessions. I think all of you have seen a hamster filling its cheek with food. We human beings are not so different from hamsters. We also spend a lot of time in our lives to gather things, to amass material possessions. We keep collecting things and then we think, uh, or then we take ourselves to be the owner of these material possessions. So we think these things belong to us. And because they belong to us and because we are the owner of these things, then we have to make sure that these things do not get stolen or that they are not destroyed, that uh, they do not break. And so we put them carefully aside or if it's very precious things, we hide them away or we put them into a safe. And still worrying that these things could be taken away or be stolen, then uh, we take an insurance uh, policy out against theft or uh, destruction by fire. Uh, or water. But with all these measures and precautions, there is still no guarantee that our things will not be destroyed or stolen. In the scriptures, there are uh, five uh, in the scriptures, scriptures, five enemies are mentioned that can uh, destroy our material possessions. And these five enemies are fire, then water, the third one is theft, the fourth one is confiscation by the government or authorities, and the fifth one is disloyal children. <laughs> First, 
two of these enemies, fire and water, they belong to the destruction caused by nature. And so we also can include the destruction by avalanches, storms, or uh, mudslides. And the three remaining uh, enemies, they cause the destruction of our possessions through the misuse of power, force, or domination. So as much as we take care or take precautions, there is no guarantee that our possessions do not be destroyed or get stolen. And so if there is no essence in the possession of these things, in these material things, then what kind of essence can we extract from these things or material possessions? How can these things, these material possessions, uh, be helpful in our search for happiness and freedom of the heart? Is there an indestructible essence to be found in these things? The essence that we can extract from our things or material possessions is dana. Dana means generosity, giving, offering. Dana, generosity, is a quality dormant in all human beings. It's this quality of the heart that moves a person to give away his or her possessions for the welfare of another person or another being. The practice of generosity or giving opens the heart and it counters such unwholesome qualities such as self-centeredness, stinginess, stinginess, or miserliness. Practicing generosity nourishes the qualities of uh, compassion, benevolence, and um, goodwill. When we engage in uh, an act of generosity, then during this act of giving or sharing, our heart um, is filled with joy and delight. So unwholesome qualities like self-centeredness or stinginess are absent. And we can extend these wholesome mental qualities to the time before and after the actual act of giving. So already from the moment we have an idea of giving something to somebody else, then in getting these things or preparing these things, cooking a meal we want to offer, we already can feel uh, delighted and joyful. And also after the event of giving, when we recall our act of dana, we can derive uh, a lot of happiness and joy of having done that. <coughs> On my second trip to Australia, that was in 1991, I visited Canberra with my friend David. And we were walking through the pedestrian zone of Canberra and there we came across an elderly woman who distributed bowls of hot steaming soup. And she also invited us uh, to come and have a bowl of soup. So we stopped and she filled two bowls um, of soup out of a huge uh, pot. And as I was eating this delicious 
um, vegetarian soup, which was apparently uh, prepared with a lot of care and love. I looked around to see if there was a sign or uh, kind of a post saying for what group or organization she was distributing the soup. But I couldn't see, uh, see anything. And so I went up to her and asked her for which organization or group she was doing this thing. And she said that she didn't do it for any group or organization, but that this was her private, private offering uh, to the needy and all the bypasses. And she continued to say that uh, from her monthly uh, welfare check that she got from the government, after having paid from her, after having paid her rent and uh, for food and insurance, she put away uh, the remaining money. And she said, you know, like other women with their spare uh, money, they go and buy beautiful clothes or makeup. But I have no interest in doing so. It makes me much happier and fills my heart with joy if I can offer every week, every Friday afternoon, this huge pot of soup to all the needy and the bypasses. And with that she turned around, filled another bowl of soup and gave it uh, to a middle-aged businessman. So the merit that uh, is gained from practicing generosity cannot be destroyed by anything or anybody. It cannot be uh, stolen or taken away. No fire or mudslide can destroy this merit. It also cannot be confiscated by the government or authorities. And even uh, robbers uh, can come and uh, search or take away things from our house. They even can carry away the safe, but they cannot get hold of our merit. So dana is what we can extract from, from our uh, material possessions and what becomes the essence of our things. There is a great power in these acts of generosity and they can contribute a lot to our well-being and happiness not only in this present life but also for our happiness and well-being in future existences. Very often when the Buddha gave a talk to people who were not his disciples, he would start to talk about uh, generosity and the benefits of uh, practicing generosity. Because it is such an important uh, quality on the spiritual path. It's almost like this is the uh, foundation or basis upon which the other steps of the path uh, are built. Then let's go to the second part, uh, our body. This also plays an important role in our life. As long as we are alive, people usually take this body uh, to be something permanent or something lasting. And so people think it's my body, this body belongs to me. And so they think this body belongs to them and they can do with their bodies whatever they want. At least to a certain degree. People think they have power and control over their body. But this power or control 
rests only on a very superficial level. As soon as people really want to make use of control or power, they have to admit that they don't have this uh, absolute power or control. For example, if people uh, get a bad cough or a running nose, uh, it's not possible to say, bad cough, I don't want you now, you're a bit of a nuisance, (laughs) Uh, disturbing myself and all the other meditators too. (laughs) It doesn't work. We don't have this uh, absolute power or control. So then, if as soon as we, or once we want to make use of it, we come to see that this power or control rests only on a very superficial level. And as soon as we really want to make use of it, it dissolves. And uh, it's not there anymore. And in regard to having ownership uh, over this body, at the time of death, we have to leave the body behind. We cannot take it with us. Even if we take this body apart and uh, check each part of the body for some core or for some essence or for some lasting uh, substance, we have to admit that there is nothing lasting or permanent. And the Buddha said, that this body is the seed for 96 different kinds of sickness. So basically, each part of the body can become sick. Our eyes can become sick, our ears can ache, our skin can get cancer, our lungs can get bronchitis, whatever. So there is no part of the body that cannot be afflicted by a sickness. A contemplation that is frequently practiced takes the 32 parts of the body as its object. (coughs) So, checking these 32 parts of the body, we come to see that none of these 32 parts is permanent or unchanging. And there is none, <coughs> none of these 32 parts in which we can find something permanent or something really substantial, something that would be unchanging. And This reflection on the 32 parts of the body also aims at gaining a more realistic understanding of our body. So seeing the impermanence of our body, with that we can overcome our obsession with the body or our vanity uh, in regard to the body. People spend so much time worrying uh, and obsessing about their health or try to prevent uh, the aging process. And spending so much time on that, then people neglect um, to purify uh, their inner beauty instead of their outer beauty. And the Buddha had to um, make clear this point uh, quite frequently, especially uh, to women who are greatly obsessed with their beauty, who uh, had great vanity. The story of Queen Kema is a famous example for this. Queen Kema was the wife of King Bimbisara, 
and King Bimbisara was a devout disciple of the Buddha and he was actually a stream enterer. And so he, Queen Kema, being very beautiful and being very conceited about her beauty, she strongly refused to go and see the Buddha because she had heard that the Buddha did not care much for beauty. And so King Bindisara very much wanted her to come to understand the Buddha's teaching. And he tried different ways, but she strongly resisted. And so finally, uh, he had another idea. He had a poet making poems describing the beauty of the Veluvana monastery. And then these poems were recited near Queen Kema. And as she heard the description of this Veluvana monastery, how beautiful and serene and peaceful that place was, a desire to go and see that place arose in her. But to make sure that she wouldn't come across the Buddha, she went in the morning when the Buddha was uh, out on arms round. And so, together with her uh, attendants, they walked around in the Veluvana monastery, enjoying the peacefulness of the place, seeing the beautiful flowers, the songs of the birds. And they came across the Buddha's kuti building, and so she was curious to see how the Buddha lived. And assuming that he was out on arms round, she went up and opened the door. But then she was uh, surprised to see the Buddha sitting there. And next to the Buddha was a very young and beautiful woman fanning the Buddha. And Queen Kema, thinking that she was the most beautiful woman in the whole country, looked at this young woman and she had to admit that this young woman was even more beautiful than herself. And so, in great amazement, she stood there, staring at this young beautiful woman. But then the Buddha, with his uh, supernormal powers, he made this young, attractive, beautiful woman getting older, kind of a fast forward thing. And so this beautiful woman got old quite quickly in the in the very in front of the very eyes of Queen Kema. And so then the beautiful black hair turned grey and then white. The beautiful white teeth became yellow, started to fall out. The skin started to have wrinkles, deep wrinkles, and uh, the back became bent. And so finally it was this old, ugly woman uh, standing next to the Buddha, and by that time she had to have a stick. And as this old, frail woman was wanted to walk away, she take, took a few steps and she fell down and was dead. Queen Kema was shocked to see that. And after a little while, the Buddha addressed her, saying, My beautiful Kema, the nature of this old woman is the, the nature of the body of this old woman is the same as yours. There is nothing pure, beautiful, and permanent in this body. Let go of it. Let go of your attachment to this body and find the freedom of heart. And this worked. So Queen Kema realized her vanity regarding her beauty. And she understood 
what the Buddha said. And because of her uh, mature perfections that she had accumulated in previous lives, uh, she wanted to become a nun. So she went back to the palace and told her husband, King Bimbisara, that uh, she wanted to become a bhikkhuni. And King Bimbisara, as I said already, a Sotapanna, he was not aggrieved or um, sad about the fact that his beautiful wife wanted to leave him. Actually, he was very happy that she wanted to become a bhikkhuni, and so she ha- he happily gave her permission to become a bhikkhuni. And it is said that um, it didn't take her too long before a venerable Kema became an Arahant. And actually, Queen Kema became the foremost bhikkhuni, uh, the foremost being in wisdom, like she was the female counterpart to Venerable Sariputta, who was foremost in wisdom among the monks. So, what is the essence that we can extract from our body? The essence is sila, or uh, moral conduct. The way we use our body for physical actions and speech can either be wholesome, beneficial, and supportive, or it can be unwholesome, detrimental, and harmful. And there are certain guidelines which tell which kind of actions are considered wholesome, beneficial, and which ones are not. And in the Buddha, Buddhist context, these guidelines are the precepts. And for the, our actions of body and speech to be beneficial, wholesome, blameless, the Buddha proposed the five precepts, which we are all familiar with. So the merit that is gained by keeping these precepts cannot be destroyed by any of the five enemies. Fire and water cannot do any damage to this merit, nor can uh, thieves, authorities, or disloyal children do any damage to the merit that we gain from uh, keeping the precepts. The merit is ours and under the right conditions it will bear uh, fruit. So for the welfare of other sentient beings and also for our own welfare we should uh, restrain and control our actions of body and speech. We should refrain from doing anything that could cause harm or inflict suffering to other living beings. But we also should uh, refrain from anything that could cause harm and suffering to ourselves. Basically, we should treat other living beings with respect and dignity in the same way as we want to be treated by others with respect and dignity. The five precepts are also called Nicha Gahu Dhamma. This is a Pali word which consists of three uh, words. Nicha is the opposite of Anicca, which you know very well. So Nicca means permanent or lasting. Then Garu means worthy of respect. And Dhamma is Dhamma. 
term for all existing things, for the law of nature, including the law of cause and effect. And so the five precepts as Nietzsche, Garu, Dhamma are guidelines which we should always respect. So faultless, pure moral conduct is the essence that we can extract from our body. The observance of sila is a meritorious deed that supports us in this life and also in future existences. And on top of that, sila, ethical conduct, is a basic and necessary condition for the practice of meditation. Because only when we are free from the most coarse uh, moral transgressions will we be able to um, concentrate the mind well. And only with a concentrated, focused mind are we able to get insights or to see things as they really are. And now let's go to the third part which plays an important role in our life. And this is our mind. We also could call it the heart and the mind. And with this we mean all mental phenomena, our thoughts, our emotions, our uh, fantasies and so on. And through our meditation practice we have come to see that also this mind, these mental states, these emotions, these thoughts, are uh, changing, fleeting, impermanent things. No thought or emotional state is lasting, unchanging or permanent. A thought comes stays for a while and then disappears again. Or an emotion comes up, takes hold of us, but then after some time it simply dissolves and disappears again. And even opinions or beliefs that we have held for many years, they can actually change or they do change. So, looking at our mind with its thoughts, emotions and so on, we come to see that also there, there is no permanent substance to be found, no substantial core or entity that is unchanging or eternal. So our mind is subject to impermanence in the same way as are our body and our material possessions and also the other characteristics of unsatisfactoriness, non-self, non-beauty and without substance or essence uh, apply to the mind. So then, what is the essence that we can extract from our mind? It is bhavana, or meditation, mental development, that is the essence that we can extract from our mind. In the Buddhist tradition, there are two kinds of bhavana, or mental training, mental development. One is the practice of samatha bhavana, 
concentration meditation and the other one is vipassana bhavana or insight meditation. The aim of samatha meditation is a a one-pointed and concentrated uh, mind. And so to get a one-pointed concentration of mind, one chooses one object and constantly focuses one's mind on that object until the mind becomes deeply concentrated on that object or until the mind becomes absorbed into that object. And with this level of deep concentration, the mind becomes calm and still. And out of that calmness, out of that stillness, arises a sense of happiness or joy or even bliss. So as long as one is uh, deeply concentrated, one can experience or enjoy this calmness with the resulting happiness and bliss. But as soon as one comes out from this deeply concentrated state of mind, then the calmness, the happiness, the bliss is gone. Then the second kind of bhavana is vipassana bhavana, vipassana meditation, which we usually translate as insight meditation, or sometimes also as mindfulness meditation. And the aim of vipassana meditation is to gain a deep and penetrating understanding of the true nature of phenomena. And it's through this deep and liberating understanding that happiness and true peace can arise. And unlike in Samatha meditation, where we only focus on one object, in Vipassana meditation there is a wide range of objects. Basically everything that we can perceive through the body and mind becomes the object of our careful observation because we want to understand things in their true nature. And so it's with this kind of vipassana meditation that we develop insights and understanding in the true nature of phenomena and it's through this practice that uh, this insight or understanding will culminate in the wisdom that liberates us from all uh, causes of suffering and so with the causes of suffering destroyed there is happiness, there is peace there is contentment, then the mind is liberated. So the merit that is gained through the practice of meditation is easy to get and it's most beneficial for our uh, goal of liberation. And meditation is not limited to intensive meditation retreats or to a formal sitting at home. But meditation can and should be applied everywhere and anytime. As I said, bhavana meditation is mental development or mental training the development of the heart and the mind. And so we can apply this principle anywhere and anytime uh, during the day. All that is needed is attention and a commitment to stay in the present moment. So if we make it our aim 
to stay attentive and mindful in each moment uh, of our life, of our day, and knowing, uh, in order to know what is going on in our body and mind, then we can gain the greatest benefit possible from each moment in our life. So, the investigation or observance of the true nature of all phenomena is the essence that we can get out of our mind. Our insights and understanding, our wisdom, cannot be destroyed by any of the five enemies. Fire and water can do no damage to our insights and understanding and also robbers cannot steal it, uh, authorities cannot confiscate it, and disloyal children cannot take it away from us. So, Dana, Sila, and Bhavana are wholesome, meritorious deeds. Dana, generosity, is the essence that we can extract from our material possessions. Sila, moral conduct, is the essence that we can extract from our body. And Bhavana, mental development, meditation, is the essence that we can extract from our mind. <clears throat> so dana, sila and bhavana are the ingredients for a happy and fulfilling life right now and as well as in the future. And so generosity, moral conduct and meditation are the essences of our life. Basically we all, or at least most uh, people, want to do, want to lead a good life and do good. But out of sheer ignorance and not knowing, people do things that are unskillful or that are harmful being caught in their delusion, in their blindness, people do things with which they cut into their own flesh. So, usually people's deluded actions are based on ideas or opinions or speculations rather than uh, on reality or based on facts. There are many philosophers, thinkers and writers who have set up different philosophies or religions or doctrines but they are all caught in the belief uh, of a self. These are pe uh, people with a high intellect and uh, very sharp intellect, but still they have died within the confinement of their prison, namely within the confinement uh, in the belief in a self. To get free from these chains, to get free from this prison, uh, the Buddha did not make use of logical thinking or intellectual uh, reasoning, but he looked very carefully and without any prejudices, trying to see the true nature of things. Because the aim of the Buddha's teaching is realization, a deep, personal and direct understanding of how things truly are. 
And so coming back to the verse of the Dhammapada, which I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, we can now better understand what the Buddha meant by to avoid all evil, to cultivate good, and to purify one's mind, and how we actually can uh, implement this in our lives. The value of the Buddha's teaching does not lie so much in its theoretical logic, but much more in its very direct and practical approach of how to put it into practice in our life. In the same way as we need certain ingredients to make bread, such as flour, water, salt and yeast, so do we need the ingredients of dana, sila and bhavana for a happy and fulfilling life. So may all of you be able to practice dana, sila and bhavana and may the merits of these practices lead to a happy, peaceful life and further may it be a condition to become fully liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.